We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode 14 of Lion Legacy. The release date of this episode is Thursday, April 22nd, also known as Earth Day, and it is only appropriate to have on an alum who is helping the cause. That's right, Jared. We spoke with Paul Suey, who's the co-founder of Revel, a company that is on a mission to electrify urban mobility with electric mopeds, bikes, and charging stations. And next time we're in New York City, because they have a lot in New York City, yep. you and I are getting on an electric moped, uh-huh. and we're going to explore the entire city, maybe even going to, to Brooklyn and some of the other boroughs. Yep. yep. And we have two options. One, we can get two mopeds. Yep. Or we can go the, the dumb and dumber style. That's right. All right. So <laughs> who's driving? Who's sitting in the back? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. We'll have to switch off. Well, but, you're uh, the native New Yorker. You can drive around. Maybe I'll drive. That's fair. That's fair. So some of the things that we learned in our conversation with Paul, he actually started his career at ExxonMobil, which is the big oil company. And he's going to tell us about what he learned starting off his career with a big oil conglomerate and then eventually meeting his business partner and how they ultimately founded the company. Also, Rebel's company mission and the different products that they're working on and offerings. And lastly, how Rebel keeps their moped driver safe. And with that, we're going to zip on into episode 14. All right. Let's welcome Paul Suey, 2014 Penn State and Schreier Honors College graduate with a major in chemical engineering and co-founder and chief operations officer at Revel the largest shared electric vehicle operator in the United States. With the company's mission to electrify cities, Paul was recently honored in Forbes' 30 under 30 annual list. Paul, this is a hot topic, a growing industry. Welcome to Lion Legacy. Thanks for having me. Definitely uh, excited to chat. Great. Now, before we get into Revel, because I know there's a lot we want to talk about there, I've got to ask about your last name, Suey. It's somewhat of a legacy name at Penn State. Any relationship there? Yeah, it's almost like there are three certainties in life as a SUI. Death, taxes, and going to Penn State. So I'm a fourth-generation Penn Stater, great-grandfather, grandparents, my parents, my brother. That's not taking into account cousins, second cousins, uncles, great-aunts, great-uncles. So I guess needless to say, there's definitely a lot of Penn State in my family. So there was no concern when you applied, will I get in? Will I not get in? I'd say I was pretty confident. And then just being from State College as well, just have a lot of history being around the university and was really excited to go. We have the Lion Legacy podcast here, but you're living a real life Lion Legacy, right? The true sense of the word. Love it. So Paul, Jared mentioned in the intro that your company is on a mission to electrify cities. What are the ways that Revel, your company, is helping to achieve that? So really, we're doing that in two main ways. The first one is by operating large fleets of shared electric vehicles. And then the second way is by building out fast charging infrastructure. 
So on the fleet side, we have two core products. There's the moped product and the e-bike product. And just for clarity here by moped, I mean a Vespa style electric scooter. So with that product, you download our app, upload a picture of your driver's license, go through a mandatory safety training, and then use that app to find and ride. So, so think in, instead of taking uh, an Uber to get from A to B, you're taking an electric moped instead. On the e-bike side, the, the business model is a little bit different there. So with that one, you pay us a monthly fee and then you get access to your own personal e-bike. So essentially all of the perks of ownership without any of the hassles. So with an e-bike, if you were to buy that personally, that can cost two, three thousand dollars. So now you just have a low monthly fee. And then you also get access to the Rebel Maintenance Network. So if you have an issue, a flat tire, loose chain, just report that through the app and, and we'll come and fix it. So that's e-bikes and, and mopeds. And then on the charging side, we're building what we're calling super hubs. So these are large depots with a lot of fast chargers that are publicly accessible, available to the general public to charge their uh, electric cars. And with this business line, we actually just announced the largest universal fast charging depot that will be live in, in, in Brooklyn this spring. So that's actually the biggest fast charging depot in, in North America. So we're, we're super excited about that. Fantastic. Congratulations. And I just want to go back to, to mopeds and make sure I understand it. It's similar to this electric scooter, not necessarily the, the moped, but the idea of getting on the app, finding one, leaving it, and then... Do you just pick it up at night and, and recharge it and know where all these mopeds are throughout the cities? Yeah, you're hurting my feelings here, comparing us to, to kick scooters. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. There's a lot of important you know, differentiators, but probably the most important factor is the vehicle that we use, what I'm calling a moped, doesn't live in any sort of regulatory gray area. So it has a license plate. Because it has a license plate, it's regulated by the DMV. There are you know, clear regulations on insurance, where you can ride, where you can park, who can ride, and if you break those rules, what happens? So as opposed to with kick scooters, a lot of that, where you can ride, where you can park, who can ride, how those things get enforced just isn't as clear. So there's just a lot more accountability, both from you know, the user perspective and how the rider needs to act, and then also just how we need to operate the fleet and the regulations that go that goes into that. But when you leave the electric moped, you then know where it is and pick it up at night, similar to that electric scooter model? Yep. So we don't pick them up at night, but all of the batteries are swappable. So we have centralized warehouses where we have all of our charging infrastructure. We have full-time you know, trained employees that go around and maintain the vehicles, swap the batteries out, and just make sure that they're consistently available and, and safe to ride. If I'm, I guess, renting, is that the right term, right? If I'm renting one of your your mopeds yep. and let's say I'm in Brooklyn and I'm in one neighborhood in Brooklyn and I decide to drive it to another neighborhood in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. am I using that by the day, by the week? I guess is it vary, the timing can vary however long I need it for? Yep. So we have a couple of different models. Most users will use it just to get from A to B. So 15, 20, 25 minute trip. With that model, you're paying by the minute. But we also have half hour pass, an hour pass, and a day pass. So you can imagine someone visiting the city or trying to explore Brooklyn just for something to do on the weekend. Uh, that's when they're using that kind of model. And, and then one thing I'll say too, a lot of people talk about just how fun it is to ride a moped on city streets. And I definitely agree. But I think the most fun part of riding a moped is finding parking. 
which is just you're used to driving a car in New York City streets. It can take an hour to find parking. But with this, you're parking in between two cars. You're parking perpendicular to the curb. You're parking in a space where another car couldn't fit. So just that process of getting to your destination and being able to park and, and leave and get where you need to be is definitely a part of the experience. Now, I got to say, we talked about the, the rush of riding the moped in the city. I lived in New York for several years, a while back, like in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I didn't own a car when I lived in, in the city. But on occasion, I'd have to you know rent a car or if I was coming from Philadelphia, where I grew up, up back up to New York, occasionally I would have to drive. And you, you really have to put on your, your buckle up, so to speak, and you got to focus in. And driving in New York is not like driving anywhere else. So I can only imagine between the cars and the taxis, the Ubers, the other bike messengers and everybody else, and you're riding your moped, you're, you really have to be like zoned in. You know, and I'm, I'm sure you have to be very careful too, but yeah, the, uh, the parking I can imagine is that's definitely a great park. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> <laughs> so going a little bit more into the electric bikes and the charging stations, Paul, what makes the charging stations different than others? I, and then the second part of the question is why would someone choose an electric bike over an electric moped? Taking the charging question first, I think that you're going to need to extend this podcast by about an hour and a half because I could talk about this forever. I'm sure. Uh, well, there's a lot to talk about. I get really excited, but I'll try to keep it simple here. But the big difference of what we're trying to do, it really comes down to user experience. So what does that mean in the context of a, a charging station? I think it's just important to understand the big picture. So the big picture right now with this industry, outside of Tesla, the average station that you go to has one or two plugs. So one or two fast charging plugs. So think about that experience in the context of a gas car. So imagine any time that you went to fill up your car, that uh, gas station had one plug or maybe two plugs, but if it had two, one of the plugs was broken, the other plug is filled. So you have to wait 35 minutes until you can use it. It's just a ridiculous experience. It's just really bad. So instead of having these small stations that have one, two, maybe three plugs, we're really focused on these massive super hubs. So the example that I use of what we just announced in Brooklyn, that will have 30 uh, fast charging stations. So just a completely different experience of having convenient access to a charger. So just providing that, that experience is just super important to us. A lot more goes into making that experience better from the technology itself to where it's located amenities nearby. But I think the core thing that we're really doing is focusing on these massive hubs. And that's a little bit different from what you're seeing in in the industry right now. And then I think your second question on bikes versus mopeds. Yep. Answer definitely depends. I think everyone has their personal decision there and the impact of COVID changes that answer a little bit. But I think the core difference that we see, people tend to use mopeds like they use Uber. So when do you use Uber? You're going to see a friend, you're going to a restaurant, occasionally maybe you use it to get to work, but that tends to be the core use case. You're using it one, two, three times a week. And then there's also just the fun use case, which is rebel without a cause, literally nowhere to go. You're tired of being in your apartment. You want to feel the wind in your face and you just don't even care where you end up and you you just ride. So that's mopeds. And then e-bikes tends to be a little bit more of a consistent use case. So it's, it's changed a little bit because of COVID, but we're definitely seeing commuting coming back. So more of a consistent use case around you're going to the office or wherever you need to go on a consistent basis. You bike there, you park your bike in a consistent location on a bike rack or in a bike storage room. So that 
Uber use case, the fun use case versus just day-to-day commuting, consistently using your, your bike for the same thing. Out of curiosity, can you give us ballpark numbers on how many users are using the mopeds on a monthly basis versus the e-bikes? Yeah, so our the company grew off of the moped business. So we grew from a small pilot in Brooklyn in 2018. And now we're operating over 6,000 mopeds across six markets in the U.S. So with that business line, we have hundreds of thousands of users. And that's how we grew the company. The e-bike business, we actually just announced. So that will be going live pretty soon in the next week or two. So we've been collecting names for the wait list to you know, be able to deliver those bikes in the next couple of weeks here to start that business line. Okay. So then I take that question back. I'll come back to you in about a year and then you'll let me know how the one compares to the other. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> so you also teed up my next question for me, which is about the footprint of the company in various cities. So you started in New York, as you mentioned. I understand the company has grown into the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, You're in Washington, D.C., Miami, to name a few. How does the company decide where to expand? And then what's the process been like for the revelers, right? You guys call yourself revelers, right? Or you could if you want to. What's the process like when you're trying to enter a new city from a process standpoint, regulations, entering the market, things like that? Yeah. So you can imagine we we get this question a lot. And the question is usually phrased like a leading question. What's most important? Is it weather? Is it population density? Is Is it car ownership? And we think that question actually misses the point because the most important thing of deciding where to operate is, does the city want us? That's step one. So if we can't prove that we're a value add to the city, that we can operate safely, then we just don't deserve to be there. And that's just the core principle that we've had since day one and and we will continue to have. It takes a lot of work. So any market that we go to, it definitely doesn't happen overnight. A lot of proactive, long-term conversations with regulators, with politicians, with stakeholders, and in each city is a little bit different. So the permitting process is different. The concerns of that city are different. Their battle scars of working with the shared mobility industry are a little bit different. So e- each market is a little bit unique when it comes to permitting. But in, in terms of just big picture of, of what really matters, of just general characteristics, it's weather, it's population density and population. And then actually a really big one is just car ownership. So characteristics around that, are people used to using shared mobility? Are they used to using public transit? We find ourselves to be a lot more successful in those types of markets. I know you said you need a driver's license to operate the electric moped. It's obviously different than a car, of course. What safety measures you know, do you have in place to protect the moped drivers like myself, maybe never mm-hmm. been on one? or just obviously the public in general? Yeah, that's a really important question. First, I think it's important to clarify a few things about the vehicle itself. Yeah, I called it a Vespa style electric scooter, but even the smallest Vespa that you could buy still goes 40, 45 miles an hour. So the vehicle that we have, it's all electric. It tops out at 29 miles an hour. There's no gears that you need to learn. It's just much smaller, much easier to ride. So just different in, in that regard. But just on safety in general, we definitely take a lot of pride in just consistently raising the bar and you know, for ourselves and, and just for the industry in general. And there's a couple of things that we do. You know, first, we require all new users to go through a mandatory 42-question safety training before they can you know, access a, a moped. So that's big. And you know, since day one, we give free in-person lessons to anyone that wants them um, seven days a week in all of our markets. That's something that we've done since our founding. 
I personally was the original Rebel lesson specialist when we were just you know, five employees. So I've personally given hundreds of lessons to new users. Uh, and that's a really core, important aspect to our service that we do. And then we provide free helmets with every single ride and require users to take a helmet selfie to actually prove that they're wearing a helmet before they get on a moped. And then maybe the last you know, piece to, to mention in terms of safety is actually how we operate. One thing that's different about us as a company, we've never used the gig economy, have no interest in it, don't really respect that model when it comes to how it's being used right now. So by having full-time trained Rebel employees, all of our operations are in-house, just allows us to operate our, our fleet more efficiently, more safely. And like I said, it's, for us, it's honestly just, we think it's the right thing to do. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the independent contractor model, but just how it's been used in transportation to the state, just something that we don't really respect and, and don't want to get involved in. Okay. Paul, we're going to jump, switch over a little bit to more of your story and your career. I understand that you started your career at ExxonMobil, which is an interesting juxtaposition to a guy that helped to found a, an electric mobility company. And so I want to learn a little bit more, if you could tell us about your two stops prior to Rebel. I mentioned ExxonMobil, and you also worked for Gerson Lerman Group. What were your roles at those two companies, and what key learnings did you take with you from your earlier jobs that kind of helped you out as you started up with Rebel? Yeah. So big oil to big electric or, or small electric, sure. whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so I was a process design engineer at Exxon, bounced around a little bit, got to travel, was in DC for a little bit, went down to where you have to be if you're in oil and gas, which is Houston. And then before I made the move to New York, I was actually working at a refinery in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So had that sort of LSU campus feel similar to, to Penn State. I think I was probably one of the most annoying employees that Exxon ever had. How so? <laughs> Just great people, really interesting work, challenging work, solving hard problems. Just really respect the company. But I think I was always just super curious about the big picture. What's the point of this? What's next? So I just got really interested in just huge transformation that was happening with renewables, with electrification of transit, and just trying to be more involved in that. So I think that connection, that desire to be involved in what's next really led to my next job and moving to New York at GLG. That role, I'll be honest, I think when I took the job, I had no idea what I was getting into, but was pleasantly surprised with, with that role. The, the core of the job was hosting and moderating small investor conversations on anything related to the energy industry. It sounds really broad because it is roundtable and, and podcast conversations on anything ranging from battery technology to the offshore wind industry. And where is that right now? Or power markets. I could tell you right now, if I was still there at this point, I, I would have hosted 10 events on the Texas power market, just how much interest there, there is right now. But in terms of, of what I learned and what I got out of it, I would say with Exxon, really just more practice thinking like an engineer. So how do you take a really difficult problem break it down into its component parts and just that process and systematic thinking and being able to break down a, a problem and just first principle thinking, I think was a great experience. At GLG, with that experience of hosting and moderating a lot of events, just made a lot of strong relationships and connections. So my co-founder, Frank, and I, I think from that have a lot of expert relationships, people that we brought on as advisors to the company, people that actually ended up investing people that said no to investing, but then connected us to someone that ended up investing. 
really a, a strong uh, relationship building exercise there. Excellent. So I'm going to dig into that last part a little bit. So you mentioned your, your business partner, Frank. So he comes to you at some point, right? You guys connect a few years back and this idea comes about for this electric mobility company that ends up being Rebel. First of all, how do you know Frank? And then how did the ideas come about? And you know, what were you kicking around originally? How did you guys get this whole gig off the ground? Yeah, so I think one of the, the benefits of how we came to start the company is we started our relationship at a professional level and then it formed into a friendship. So instead of starting company as friends, we met at GLG, we were coworkers, we got along well, we worked well together, we had very complementary personality types and then became friends from there. I think the two of us are very anxious people. So just like I was the most annoying person at Exxon, you know, Frank, he's a former professional chef. So by that, I mean, just has a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, always looking to do the next thing, just brings a lot of hustle to the table. I'll give Frank credit for bringing the idea to me, but I'll, I'll take credit for the, for the name itself. I think he was trying to name the company something ridiculous, and I, and I saved it from that. <laughs> but I think it's also important, why did I hop on board immediately? You can imagine that conversation. Frank and I, we were actually both getting ready to go back to grad school. I was going to get a PhD. He was going to go get an MBA. And then he comes to me with this initial idea. And you can imagine how that conversation went. You want to quit your job, invest all of your savings into this. Don't take a salary for six months. And, you know, I thought about it for half a second and said, 100%, sign me up. I'm down. Let's do this. No hesitation whatsoever. And I, and I think that comes from, you know, both for him and for me, it's a combination of personal and professional of why we thought that this was the idea to go after. At, at a personal level, I always thought riding an electric or just a moped in general in New York City was the world's greatest secret. It was so fun and no one knew about it. Uh, when I was at Penn State, my older brother was in New York City. So I would come visit him. He's always had a Vespa. He would take me around on it and no one else was riding this vehicle. It was so fun, so easy to get around. It was like, don't tell anyone about this because this is like the best thing ever. So that's the personal side on top of just going to any major city in the world, whether it's in a developed country or a developing country, you just see this mode uh, of getting around. It's just the dominant form of transportation in the world. Uh, so connecting those two things. And then you connect that personal side to the professional side of this is what I read about in my free time. This is what I'm interested in. I'm learning about transportation. I'm learning about electric vehicles. And you combine those two things and then you add on just the little the sprinkle of craziness that it takes to be an entrepreneur. And we were off to the races. Speaking of being an entrepreneur, what's been that biggest lesson that you've learned over the last few years as it relates to entrepreneurship? Yeah. Oh man. There's a lot. There's definitely a lot. I, I think it's being able to make decisions and lead in the face of extreme uncertainty. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different types of companies that people can start. No entrepreneur or no business or industry is the same. But just with my personal experience, I think a lot of being a founder is being able to really have a big vision and rally people around that, but then connecting that vision to the day-to-day. -day. How does that vision translate into how we need to execute, how we need to make decisions, um, how we can just march forward towards that longer-term place that we want to be? So balancing those two aspects has definitely been a learning process. And then when you look at the pandemic, because every guest that we've had on, we usually ask about how COVID-19 has impacted their business. But I'm curious, right? 
you guys have such a great alternative now to public transportation where so many people have said, Ooh, I really don't want to be on a packed subway or, or a bus. What's been the, the last year like for you? Yeah, it's been tough. It's, it's been a crazy year. I think before I you know, talk about anything related to the company, I think it's always just important to, to break it down at a personal level. We have 300 employees. A lot of our employees have been personally impacted in a lot, a lot of ways in which you can imagine. So that's just been you know, tough. And, and also just at a company level, there's already so much uncertainty when it comes to running a startup. And then you just add on the uncertainty of COVID. You know, I was the guy, I'm, I think you can imagine just by starting this company, I'm a little bit of a, an eternal uh, optimist. So I'm the guy mid-March last year saying, there's no way this thing lasts more than two weeks. Two weeks, that's it. We're back to normal. So not knowing when things were going to come back, not knowing what the next month would hold, that was obviously just really tough. But in terms of how it impacted ridership, I think the answer is it depends on the market, depends on the time. You're going into winter, it's been tough. The first lockdowns last year were really tough just because no one was moving. You're not going to work. You're not going to see friends. You're not going to restaurants. You're just literally not moving. But as we came out of the first lockdown in some of our markets this summer, people were definitely just anxious being pent up in their apartment or house and just wanting to, to ride around. So we, had, we saw a huge spike in demand this summer. And then also one thing that we did as a company when that demand was going down in the initial lockdowns, we opened up our service and provided free rides to all healthcare workers. We were really proud of that to be able to help. Had a lot of signups and a lot of rides on that service. Did, did a lot of the healthcare providers take, take you guys up on that offer? They did, yeah. So uh, a lot of rides, uh, a lot of miles put on during those, those couple of months. And, and one thing we, we also did too, we had that program and then we partnered with a lot of local restaurants. So as restaurants were shifting over to delivery services that charge a really high commission, that make it very difficult for them to run a viable business. We just said, hey, take six mopeds, take two mopeds, use them, they're yours, free of charge, use it for the, the next couple of weeks, a month or two, just to stay on your feet. So those were the, the two core things that we tried to do our part to help. Excellent. That's very admirable and, and applause to you guys for, for, the, for offering that. You've talked us through, Paul, the evolution of Revel, how you started out with your bread and butter being the mopeds. And you guys are, are expanding into the uh, electric bikes, the charging stations, which, all of which is very cool. And what's next on the horizon for Revel as far as electrifying cities in the future? I tell you, but I have to kill you. Uh, <laughs> so Generally, will, directionally. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say, unfortunately, can't talk about it now, but you won't have to wait too long because we'll definitely have some big announcements in the near future. Cool. So I, I, I assume... I, I'll have this. I'll make an assumption. You don't have to answer, but I would imagine it involves more expansion. I have to guess you guys are looking at more cities. There's probably some other aspects of electric mobility that we're not even thinking of that's out there. It's just like the natural scale of it all is how I picture that in my head. Again, you don't have to respond, but it's just that's how. <laughs> right on both accounts. Okay. <laughs> Ross, we'll make sure you're signed up on the email list so you get you're the first to know. Hey, it sounds it sounds cool. You know, I mean, I haven't been in, back to New York in a while. Just speaking with Paul, I'd like to get on one of these things, you know, after my lessons and my safety test and everything and go zipping around on that. It sounds really cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you some writing credit. All right. Awesome. So we're going to now transition into your time at Penn State and put you in the lion's den. Uh, you know, you've shared with us your very impressive career, how you started out with some uh, big name companies and then how you went out on your own with Revel. 
how has Penn State prepared you for your career to this point? I think Penn State, it teaches you a lot about how to find opportunity. It's a big school. So I think with that, because it's a big school, it's easy to get lost in that size. But there's so much opportunity at the school, whether it's you know, sports clubs or majors or professors, research. So I, I think it teaches you how to take this big thing and find your niche, build relationships. And I think that's a, a really great lesson when it comes to just how to build your career. And if you've listened to past episodes, you know that this is the toughest question of them all. Favorite memory at Penn State? I think the first one that comes to mind is actually uh, Thon 2013. The reason for that one is I think that year put a lot of hard work into that event, made a lot of strong relationships with some families in the Thon community, and then also just had a lot of friends that also put in a lot of hard work. So that just year-end culmination of that, of those relationships, is just you know, an experience that, that I definitely won't forget. What were you doing at THON those years? Yeah, sophomore year, I helped start a special interest organization. And so my 2013 served as the president of, of that organization. So I was leading that and it was just a, a really a, a fun year and just had a lot of fun. Excellent. So next one that we like to ask, Paul, is if you could visit with the 18-year-old version of yourself, just about to, to enter Penn State freshman year, and you come across yourself back then, mm -hmm. what advice do you share with him or you? I'd say have fun and stop thinking so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, the experience only lasts so long. You have a lot of time to worry about what you're doing next. I think there's just an element of enjoying the experience, enjoying the people around you, and just having fun. So that's definitely what I'd focus on. I can imagine that would be good advice. I, I'm just thinking about you and, you know, you were in the Schreier's Honors College. You're a chemical engineering major. You probably had a pretty heavy workload. Yep. So I think uh, as you're a bright guy, good student, uh, and obviously very concerned with your studies, I can see how in hindsight, I think everybody looks back and says, yeah, just relax, have some fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. definitely a, a lot of the workload was tough, but I had a lot of fun really good friends wouldn't have gotten through those classes and, and what I had to do if I didn't have those friends. So that's what I remember. And then along the same advice lines, when you're in Brooklyn these days and someone says, Hey, I'm considering a few colleges, one of them being Penn state. Why do you tell them they should go there? I forget who first told me this, but a joke that, that I heard that I think made a lot of sense. The question was, how do you know if someone went to Penn state? And the answer is they'll tell you. Which maybe wasn't meant to be a little offensive, but I think there's an underlying uh, good message to that, which is the, the first point is it's really difficult to find a Penn Stater that didn't have a good experience. Uh, like I said, it being a big school, I think with big school comes a lot of opportunity. There's just a lot of things to get involved in, a lot of niches, a, a lot of ways to find where you fit. So you, you have this potential to really build a lot of strong relationships during that experience. And then because it's a, a bigger school, because it has a lot of passionate alumni, you guys included in, in, in starting this podcast, I think you, you not only have that opportunity to build those really impactful relationships when you're there, but then it just keeps growing. When you, when you graduate, you go into your career, networking, the alumni network, I think having access to um, that sort of stuff is just a, a big reason because the, the Penn State experience, it, it doesn't stop when you graduate which is great. You know, they say that there's a little bit of truth to every joke. And I think that that is very true, that joke you mentioned. So, 
Uh, Paul, how do you feel most connected to the university these days? Yeah, I, I say through friends and family. I think from the first question that you guys asked, it's clear that anytime I talk to anyone that's remotely related to me, they probably went to Penn State. So there's always that familial connection. And then you know, friends from uh, clubs that I was in at Penn State, from a major, definitely stay in contact there and have always been a huge sports fan. So love watching anything from football to basketball, big wrestling fan as well. I think that's how I stay connected too. Fantastic. This has been a great 30 plus minutes speaking with you. I got to say, I grew up in New York City. I, I just wish that Revel was around when I was in high school and, you know, was on public transportation, could take it to high school. It would have been perfect. So next time Ross and I are in New York City, we're definitely getting on one of these. We're exploring the city. We're going to hit you up as well so we can meet you in person but certainly wish you a lot of continued success. Look forward to seeing where Revel goes with not only the moped business, but the bikes, the charging stations, and then Ross is trying to get out of you what you're doing next. So we're certainly going to continue and follow your journey along the way, but congratulations on everything that you've achieved to this point and looking forward to seeing you in more and more cities as well. Thanks, guys. It, it means a lot and, and looking forward to chatting again soon. And we always end with, we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoyed this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.